On October 30th, 1938, millions of Americans tuned in to a popular radio program that featured audio plays directed by the famous Orson Welles. That evening, they were performing an adaptation of the sci-fi novel, The War of the Worlds. And if you don't know what that is about, it's about a Martian invasion on Earth. But this play was done with an important change. Under his direction, the play was written and performed so that it would sound like a news broadcast about an invasion from Mars. And this was done in order to heighten the dramatic effect. So the play was constantly interrupted with fake news bulletins reporting that a huge flaming object had dropped on a farm in New Jersey. Actors playing news announcers and officials described the landing of an invasion force from Mars and the destruction of the United States of America. At one point in the broadcast, an actor even described the emergence of one of the aliens from its spacecraft with its leathery tentacles, V-shaped mouth dripping with saliva, and black eyes gleaming like a serpent. Unfortunately, most members of the audience missed the announcement that it was all just a play. As a portion of the audience listened to this supposed breaking news, they thought that they were hearing an actual news account of an actual invasion from Mars. People packed the roads, hid in cellars, loaded their guns, even wrapped their heads in wet towels as protection from Martian poison gas in an attempt to defend themselves against these aliens. People were stuck in a kind of virtual world in which fiction was confused for fact. Now, while it might seem very strange and unbelievable to us that so many people would be scared by such an absurd story, this shows that we are able to fall prey to lies quite easily. In the early church, there were often false teachers who tried to convince Christians that they are saved not just by their faith in Christ, much like these people who ran away from these Martian invasion. Some Christians would lose sight of the reality and believe lies because of these false teachers. The church in Philippi, too, was under attack from such false teachers. And these teachers were called the Judaizers. And they claimed that faith in Christ is not enough for salvation and that they needed circumcision as well. So it's natural that the young Christians who were listening to these false teachers, these Judaizers, were tempted to ask themselves this question. Are we really saved? 
Is our faith in Christ not enough for our salvation? This is the issue that Paul addresses in the passage that we are going to read this morning. Paul the Apostle himself took the gospel to Philippi. He himself planted the church in Philippi at a great cost to him. He loved the church deeply and he was concerned about the influence of these false teachers in the lives of these young believers. Let's read from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now there are two main things that Paul is talking about in this passage. Two questions. He talks about... How is it that we are made holy before God? And how is it that we are being made holy? How is it that we are made holy? And how is it that we are being made holy? Now in verses 1 and 2, Paul is being a good pastor to the church, to the Philippian church. He warns them about these false teachers that we talked about. Notice three times he says, look out. Or beware. 
Now it's amazing to note the language that Paul uses to describe these men. He calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Now for us who are reading this, it may seem really harsh. It seems like very unloving of Paul to call them these names. And you know what? Perhaps these men were genuinely interested in the salvation of the Philippines, but were just wrong in their doctrine. Maybe they meant well, but just didn't know right from wrong. But you see, just because somebody is sincere doesn't mean that their teaching isn't harmful. You know, today we live in an age of tolerance where it's considered unloving to correct someone of their wrong doctrine or their wrong theology. Often, we let ourselves be influenced by the teacher's sincerity than the truth of their content, the truth of the message. There are many authors, many teachers in the Christian world who are teaching false doctrine today, but are very loving, genuine, and sincere people. But when we hold up their teaching against scripture, we find that their teaching is very harmful to the soul and can lead people astray. So it doesn't matter if they are sincere. They can be sincerely wrong. Now it's possible that some of us sitting in this room today listen to or read materials by teachers like these who teach wrong doctrine but are just sincere. But we shouldn't overlook how dangerous this can be for us spiritually if we let ourselves be influenced by such kind of teaching. Paul takes this very seriously. We should too. So how can we tell if what we are listening to is right or a serious deviation from the biblical truth? How can we protect ourselves from false doctrine? There are some things we can do. We need to check everything we hear, everything we read against the Bible to make sure that the teaching is biblical, the teaching is right. Of course, in order to do this, we must first be familiar with the Bible. We need to know how to study the Bible and read it for ourselves. And if you're not sure about if what you're listening to is right or wrong, then talk to the elders in this church. They are wise men who can help us discern the truth. Read books and materials that are recommended by the elders in our church, and it can help us sharpen our discernment, can help us sharpen our judgment as to whether what we're reading is right or wrong. The church bulletin, even this morning, has a list of recommended resources and books that is helpful for us. Finally, don't hesitate to check in with other brothers and sisters and even lovingly correct them if we find that they are in error because they can be in danger of being led astray. That also means we should be able to receive correction and criticism well when others point out errors in our doctrine or in our theology. Now let's take a closer look at the particular heresy that these false teachers were introducing in the Philippian church. These people, the Judaizers, were basically saying that circumcision 
And keeping the law of Moses was also necessary in order for one to be saved. Now circumcision in and of itself is not bad. After all, God himself had commanded the people of Israel to be circumcised. And we can read about this in Genesis chapter 17. But the reason why God had asked his people to do this was so that they would be set apart as his people. It was a sign of a covenant that he made with their forefather Abraham. But this external sign does nothing to change the heart problem that we all have whether it be Jew or Gentile. You see, the problem that we deal with in our hearts is that we are rebellious against God. And therefore, we are separated from Him. And we have no hope of fixing this relationship with God ourselves. There is no external mark that we can put on our bodies. No rituals. No religious activity that we can do that can fix it. Whether it be circumcision in the old covenant or baptism today or the Lord's Supper. It requires a heart change, a heart transformation. And the only way this can happen is by us putting our faith and trust in Jesus. The problem with the Judaizers' teaching was that they were saying, that this amazing heart transformation that Christ brings about was not enough. They were saying that these Gentiles had to mutilate themselves in order for God to be truly pleased with them. So naturally, Paul was horrified that they would make so little of God's work and encourage these young Christians to rely on themselves and their flesh for salvation. Paul points out that as Christians, we are the true circumcision. Not in our bodies, not in our flesh, but we have the circumcision in our hearts. We worship not in the flesh, but in the spirit. We glory not in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh, but we glory in Christ Jesus. In fact, everything that has to do with our salvation has nothing to do with our achievements, but it has everything to do with Christ and his work in our lives. The Judaizers may have been able to intimidate these young Gentile believers. They may even have shown their moral superiority, their religious accomplishments. But Paul tries to show in this passage that all those accomplishments... Everything that they are boasting about means absolutely nothing. If you compared their religious credentials with Paul's, he is saying he has much more to boast about. So in verse 4 he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's moral standing from a worldly perspective was impeccable. Let's take a look at it. First, he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day, which means that he was born a Jew and he's been fulfilling the law's requirement from an early age. He was from one of the most noble tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee, which meant that he probably memorized the entire law 
and enforced it, enforced others to keep it too. He was zealous, zealous enough to kill Christians because he thought that they were enemies of God and that he thought he was doing right in God's sight. And to any external observer, he was blameless. He kept the law perfectly. If it was possible that sinful human beings could attain salvation from their works and their self-effort, then Paul would have done quite well. He would have fared better than anybody else. But, he says, given all these things that he has achieved, all his religious credentials, he says when he encountered Christ, he counted it all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Notice, Paul is not saying that these things were good and Christ was only a little better than them. No, he's saying that Christ far surpassed them. If all that he has achieved was like a burning candle, then Christ was the full blinding afternoon sun. All that Paul was and that all that he had done paled in comparison to Jesus and his righteousness. But it was only when Paul was able to see Jesus for who he really was, could he count all these other things as rubbish, as loss. Friends, in our world today, we are driven by what we earn. We are driven by what we accomplish, what we study, what we achieve. And so it seems counterintuitive to consider all these things as loss, all these things as rubbish. But this is exactly what Jesus said would happen when one comes to encounter him and the kingdom of God. So in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of a pearl merchant who found a pearl of such great value that he sold all his possessions so that he could go and buy it. This is not poor business practice. The man in the story understood the value of the treasure that he had found, and so he was willing to give up all his measly possessions to attain it. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think about what is it that is most valuable to you today? Perhaps it's your possessions. Maybe it's your family, your job, your degree, or your money. But just like Paul before he was a Christian, we have all things that from a human perspective we like to boast about. But as Christians, we are called to hold all these things that we value and we treasure up to the light of Christ and evaluate them by him. So let us ask ourselves a few questions. Are there things that are just as important or perhaps even more important to us than our Lord Jesus? Are there things that we are not able to count as loss for his sake? What is it that we are unwilling to give up if Christ 
was to require it of us. Friends, in order for us to be able to think like Paul, we must first be able to see Jesus as the greatest treasure of our lives. And then everything becomes loss compared to him. This does not mean that Jesus is going to ask us to give up everything in our lives. But God knows our hearts. He knows our desires. He knows what we value the most. And praise God that he reveals these idols, these sins in our lives. And by his grace, we are able to value him as the greatest treasure. Likewise, Paul also could count all his seeming prophets as loss in order to gain Christ. Now, what does it mean to gain Christ? And how do we do that? When we stand before God, all our efforts, all our good works fall short compared to his standards. The reason we can never keep the law perfectly is because we are sinful. And even our best deeds on our best day are tainted by sin. In fact, the more we try to keep the law, the more we feel the crushing burden of our inability to do so. But you see, Jesus was perfect. He kept all the laws perfectly. And we know that God was pleased with his perfection, with his obedience. When Jesus died on the cross, God judged him instead of us as if he personally had committed all these sins, all the sins of everyone who would trust in him. He took on our sins, bore our punishment, and now, because of that, God promises to clothe us with Christ's righteousness. We are united with Christ in an intimate love relationship that will extend into all of eternity. This, my friends, is what it means to gain Christ. There is no other way to be right with God other than by trusting in Christ for his righteousness. Friends, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that we are trusting in to make ourselves acceptable before God? Is it our works, our religious activities, or maybe it's our charitable deeds? Maybe you see yourself as a good person with no need for a savior in your life. My dear friends, I assure you, even our best efforts will not be enough to meet God's holy standards. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus meets a rich young man who wants eternal life, but also loves his wealth. And when asked to give up his wealth for the sake of Christ, he walks away sad and forfeits eternal life. What a fool. But that is unfortunately the choice that most people make in the world today. You see, there is no amount of wealth or any other thing that can buy us a relationship with God. Only Jesus can secure that for us. And he gives it as a free gift to anyone who wants it.
So friend, if you're sitting here and you have not trusted in Christ alone to save you from God's judgment, you can do that today. All you need to do is turn away from your sin, turn away from your self-reliance and put your full faith in Jesus and God promises that you will be saved. For Paul, gaining Christ was more than just a right standing with God. So in verse 10, he says, he, he expresses a longing to know Christ. This means that he wants to go deeper in the relationship that he already enjoys with his Savior, Jesus. He wants to know Jesus more and more. Much like in a marriage, where the couple grows each day more and more in love and knowledge of each other. Likewise, we too as Christians should long to know Jesus in deeper ways. Paul goes on to say that he also longs to experience the power of Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection was the greatest display of power. And he says that this same power that saved Paul and that saved every Christian is also at work that gives every Christian the ability to persevere through trials and temptations, to lead a godly life that pleases God, and to boldly and fruitfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Isn't it amazing, my dear brothers and sisters, to think that this same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work right now in every single Christian around the world. It doesn't matter how young or old we are in our faith. God's power is at work right now, helping believers to lead lives that please Him. Paul also desired to share in Christ's suffering. He says, even to the point of becoming like Him in His death. Now, this might seem like a strange desire to people who read this, but Jesus promised that if we are to follow him, we will suffer for him. But in the midst of our suffering, Jesus also promises that he will be a faithful friend and that through that, we will grow closer in our communion with him. I hope that this is a comfort for those of you who are experiencing suffering right now on account of Jesus. In fact, there are many Christians in the church who have gone through times of trial and have come out of them saying that it was a sweet time of fellowship with Jesus. Finally, in verse 11, Paul says that he desires by any means possible to attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, when he says any means possible, Paul is not, does not mean that he doubts if he's going to be resurrected from the dead or that there is something for him to do to attain it. Because we know that the Bible says that Christ has already secured it for him and for every Christian. But what he means is that he just can't wait to experience the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul hated the weakness of the flesh. And he longed to be rid of it so that he can be fully united with his Savior. Likewise, we too should long for that day when 
what we have only tasted now will become a reality. And on that day, we will never have to struggle again with sin or pain or suffering when we can spend eternity with Christ in the presence of the Father. Friends, do you long for these things that Paul longed for so deeply? Do you desire to grow more and more in love with your Savior Jesus? To know him more and more intimately each and every day? Are you able to rejoice when you're suffering because you are experiencing a deep fellowship with him? Finally, do you long for that day when Jesus will come back and you will be resurrected from the dead? All Christians should look with eager anticipation to that day. The Apostle John gives us a glimpse of what it is going to be like in Revelations 21, verses 3 to 4, where he says, And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, this is our home. Our home is to be with God forever, to worship Him fully, to commune with Him closely. And this is the deepest longing of every converted soul. And Jesus is saying, that day will come, and it's coming soon. Now, we have already considered what it means to be made holy in Christ, which is not by our works, but by Christ's work. Now, let's consider how is it that we are being made holy in this life. So Paul has just talked about how he has gained Christ and all the benefits and rewards that come with knowing the Savior. And it's possible that some people who are reading this letter could mistakenly assume that Paul was claiming that he has reached spiritual perfection. So Paul writes to clarify in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So even though he's been justified before God, even though he's been made a new creature, he's been given a new heart, he's been united with Christ, he has been forgiven completely, and he's been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, even then he says he was not yet perfect in his life. He was declared to be righteous before God, but in his flesh, he was still subject to temptation. He was still a sinner. See, the Bible teaches us very clearly that we will never become perfect in this life. We can make progress, but perfection is something that Christians are, will attain only when Christ comes back. 
So in 1 John 1, 7 to 9, John says, if we say we do not sin, we deceive ourselves and we are lying. Paul knew that he was not perfect, but nevertheless, he pursued it with all his might. So now the obvious question is, why do we bother to pursue this? Why do we bother to pursue holiness and perfection in our lives? After all, if you read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4, Peter says that believers are promised an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, that is already kept for them in heaven. These promises God has made does not depend on our goodness, but is secured for us by Christ. So, the question is, why strive for holiness? Why try to be holy? Paul says that the reason why he strives for holiness is because Christ has made him his own. It's because true children of God have the God-given desire to mature and grow. And just like physical children, spiritual children too cannot help but grow. The Bible says that we pursue holiness because it brings God glory. As children of God, our desire is to please him by our life. Every good work that we do pleases him, even if it is imperfect. It's kind of like a child who's trying to clean up his or her room to make their mother happy. Any mother would be happy to see their child making the effort and would praise him or her. She wouldn't scold the child because the room isn't perfectly clean. Similarly, God is pleased when we strive to be holy, even if it is imperfect. And just like any child who shows traits and characteristics of his or her parents, similarly, people born of the Spirit, when they strive for holiness, they are showing that they are genuinely children of God. So even though we can never be perfect in this life, the goal is still spiritual perfection. It's Christ-likeness. In fact, if we do not desire holiness in our lives, we find ourselves constantly pursuing wickedness, then we should ask ourselves if our faith in Christ is really genuine. Of course, Christians struggle with sin. They find it hard. But this does not mean that they are not saved. The fact that they are struggling and they are trying to resist sin is a sign of faith. So I want to encourage you, if you find yourself in that situation, to continue to fight sin and to not give up. So Paul has just talked about why is it that we strive for holiness. Now the question is, how does that happen? How can we make progress in our Christian lives? When Paul talks about his life as a Christian, he uses the term pressing on, straining forward. You see, Paul uses every bit of his energy. He works hard to move forward in the direction of his price. The price being Christ-likeness, holiness. As Paul presses on, he says, he forgets what lies behind and only looks forward to what lies ahead. Any athlete who looks back risks being passed. A good athlete, if he knows what he's doing, 
will keep his eyes fixed on the prize and looks directly ahead as he runs his race. Paul too kept his eyes fixed on the prize and he forgot everything that was behind his past spiritual failures as well as his spiritual accomplishments. It was the price, it was Christ and Christ-likeness that motivated him to run the race. Paul's working hard is not legalism, it's not works in the flesh, but it is spirit-empowered work that gives him the ability to work hard and to strive forward in that direction. So in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, Paul explains how this happens. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. So Paul is saying the way this happens is that God works to make us like Jesus and we work at the same time. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I beat my body make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the price. Previously, before we were Christians, we had no ability, we had no desire to do anything that pleased God. But now, having been united with Christ, God gives us the desire. He gives us the ability to do things that would bring him glory. But you know what is the most incredible things, thing, my dear brothers and sisters? As we strain forward, as we keep our eyes fixed on the price, God says that it is already ours in heaven. He's saying that this is a spiritual reality that cannot be changed. So in other words, we are straining forward to something that is already ours. Isn't that amazing? This should motivate us all the more to press forward, to move forward and strive hard and work hard in the direction of our prize. Paul is working towards something he knows that he already has. The story is told of a little boy who just hated to practice piano, but was forced day after day to do so. So one day, he has a vision and an angel appears to this boy and takes him to a beautiful concert hall where a concert pianist is having a show. The boy is enthralled as he watches this man's fingers dance on the keys and plays the most beautiful sounds. Turning to the angel, discouraged, he says, I wish I could play like that man. And the angel replies, you will. That man you see is you 20 years in the future. So when the boy is transported back to his living room, he attacks the piano playing with a new vigor. Now that he knows what he will be, his outlook on the present is completely different. Friends, Sometimes we don't pursue holiness as Christians because we've lost sight of this price of what we are going to be. It shouldn't produce in us laziness, complacency, but it should give us great joy. It should fill us with anticipation 
so that we can realize the price that we already have. Friends, let us pursue holiness with vigor because we know that it is already ours in Christ. At the same time, let's also remember that our growth in holiness is not an individual endeavor. God has given, given us the gift of community. He's given us other believers in our lives to help us grow. So let me list some ways we can grow in community with each other and make progress. Firstly, I want to encourage you to attend church regularly and encourage other Christians to attend church as well. The gathering of the church is a great visual reminder of what we have to look forward to. When we gather, we are reminded not only of our communion with God, but also the promise of a new and perfect life in Christ. Today, we are going to witness the sacraments of communion and later in the evening, baptism. And these are further reminders of our fellowship with God. Also, I want to say, if you're not part of a healthy local church, commit to it. And the best way to commit to it is by being a member. It's very difficult for us to experience fellowship and accountability when we are not committed to a particular body of believers. When you commit yourselves to them, you're inviting other believers into your lives to help you with your spiritual walk. Commit to one group of believers so that they can know you well and you can know them. Second, let's keep each other accountable. If you see sin in another person's life, boldly and lovingly confront the other person about it. Cultivate an attitude of being open with others. We find it a temptation to want to try, try to hide our lives. While it might seem difficult to have other people knowing our life, seeing all our sins, their input in our lives will greatly benefit us. Thirdly, be intentional. Use every opportunity to remind each other of the gospel of Jesus. So when you get together for lunch after church or meet up sometime during the week, don't let the conversations just be about frivolous things. Ask each other good questions, intentional questions, and consider the time as valuable to build each other up. Lastly, pray for each other. Our pastors pray for different members throughout the week, and they pray spiritual prayers for us. If you're not sure how to pray for other people, a good place to go would be Paul's prayers in Scripture and try praying those prayers for other people in the church. Paul says that it is mature for us to think this way. It is mature for us to think about making progress spiritually. I hope that as we have thought through Paul's encouragements to the Philippian church, that we too are encouraged personally. And as we look forward to the glorious resurrection, I pray that we will be transformed in the way we live our lives today. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, that Christ has come. He has borne our sins on himself 
and he has resurrected from the dead. And now because of him, we have forgiveness, we have new life, and we have the hope of being with God forever. God, we pray, Lord, that we will keep our eyes fixed on our prize, which is Christ. Father, we pray that every day we will be encouraged as we think of who we already are and who God is making us to be. Father, I pray, Lord, that this will transform the way we live our lives. We ask all this, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus.